family reunion, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am Sean M. Myers, one of your hosts, and with me is my co-host and back cousin, Paul Keene. How are you doing, Paul? I am doing well, Sean, but let me tell you, my 91-year-old great aunt Jane just showed up. Unfortunately, she can't make a decent apple pie, but wow, is she a great badminton player. Nobody has beaten her since the 1940s. Hats off to her. I remember Grandpa Lyle came close one year, but he wasn't an ace player. (laughs) Paul, what do you want to tell the folks at home about the show? So Batman Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978. And then it rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Man Bat, and even Batmite. Both of your hosts read and collected these comics as they came out, and they are excited to share their love of this era at the Batman family reunion. Let's dive into issue number six. Okay, so issue number six is cover dated July, August, 1976. And it was the month that every title that DC had was saluting the Bicentennial. There's a cover dressed at the top. DC Comics salutes the Bicentennial in red, white, and blue. The comic was released on April 1st, 1976. Once again, 48 pages for 50 cents. We do get two new stories this time, along with two reprints. And the cover artist for a double box cover, Ernie Chan. So Sean, let us have it. What do you think of the cover? This really is Chan's tribute to A Tale of Two Cities, (laughs) because this is the best of times and it's the worst of times. (laughs) So people know how I feel about the box covers. I'm not going to get into What'd you get two of them this time? You do. That actually is almost the best of it. The two images actually in the boxes, I think are fantastic the top one is robin falling off of the unispan holding on to joker's daughter's fake hands that absolutely is what's on the tin is what's in the box because you get that scene underneath is a very exciting picture of someone riding a bison and they're hitting batgirl's horse and she's falling off a cliff so it's a definitely a tribute to falling by the members of the Batman family. (laughs) And then even the box below is great because it's the villain of the issue, the Mad Hatter. And Chan drew images of the Mad Hatter himself in his different guises that he's going to be in in the story. Yeah, I really like that too. Now, unfortunately, the worst of times are like the floating heads. And for a couple of reasons, if Chan would have drawn those heads, I think it definitely would have gone a long way to make the cover better. And also it's odd because, and maybe this is just my eye. It seems like the Batgirl and Robin heads are like centered for the Robin story. And then the Alfred, it seems like that's further down than what it should be. Hmm, I didn't notice that. If anything, I think it should be maybe like a Batman head squeeze Batgirl, Robin and Alfred in a little bit tighter and then put a Batman head underneath that. Because he is in the Mad Hatter story. True. Listen, I love the Bicentennial covers and we're going to wax on a little bit more about them when we get to that branding. But there's a lot going on in this (laughs) cover. Trade dress was already busy. Batman family in text, giant with the 50 cent. We've got the two fetching Mike Grell 
images, the little tiny versions right at the top. Then the logo, you got the DC Comics exclusive the Bicentennial on top. Then you got the heads on the left. Then you got the Mad Hatter five heads on the bottom. So there's a lot going on as opposed to just picking one scene. And I did think it's funny that the Robin scene definitely happens right in the story. So keep part of the story and the background scene just does not happen. The only other thing I'd say about this cover is I really wish we had gotten this red for the Christmas one because this red yeah. is much Christmassier than the others. We'll post the image of the cover as well as additional pages from each of the stories in our family portrait gallery on the network's website. Sean, I keep forgetting what's that website? That is fireandwaterpodcast.com. The first story is Valley of the Copper Moon, starring Batgirl. It is a nine-page story written by Elliot S. Magan. The penciler is Jose Delbo. The inker is Vince Coletta, and it was later reprinted in Batgirl, the Bronze Age Omnibus, Volume 1 hardcover. The splash page features a poster picturing Batgirl astride a bucking bison and trumpeting her appearance at the second annual Prairie Festival and Rodeo. Our story proper begins in Washington, D.C., where Barbara Gordon returns a campaign contribution meant to influence her vote against the Mattituck tribe before she is whisked away for an emergency vote on the floor. We skip ahead a few days to watch Senator Cleary, Congressman Matthew, and Babs board a helicopter to fly out to the Mattituck Reservation. When they land, the trio is introduced to Jack Lightfoot, a tribal council member who is their guide. Shortly after, a bison stampede breaks out, but Babs shuts it down rather quickly. That night, the festival is underway, and after Batgirl makes her appearance, she accuses Littlefoot of secret dealings with the Abraxas Syndicate. Jack tries to kill Batgirl, but she kicks him off his bison and makes him admit his guilt in front of the audience at the festival. Paul, what did you think? Well, this story has some nice moments and pretty good art. I do like the art. Not a lot of plot. Mm-hmm. You had Jose Delbo again on Batgirl. He's got very smooth, clean lines. I do like the splash page with a poster. I think that's kind of fun. I like the shot of Babs' office. I do think it's funny. She's about to go shopping because there's nothing to do. And then, then an alarm bell rings and all the Congress people are running to the... <laughs> To the floor. I just find it hard to imagine that really occurring. <laughs> Best part about it is probably her green cowboy outfit with a hat. It's actually her cow person outfit. Oh, excuse me. A cow person outfit. Sorry. <laughs> we do get an interesting thing from Elliot S. Magan, who's trying to build his own little universe. They talk about how Batgirl's going to make an entrance almost as spectacular as the one she made a year ago. I'm pretty sure we never saw that story because they even note, do you want to see that story? Let us know. And I guess nobody told them they wanted to see that story. (laughs) It's funny because I am self-reflecting and I know when I do these recaps, I tend to jump around and I don't really follow the story from beat to beat. But really, there's not a lot of beats happening in this story. I think we really did cover them. She's in her office. She goes to the tribe. She sees his fancy boots. She tells him to tell everyone that he's a crook. That really is the story. Did you think she knew he was bad all along? Maybe I'm trying to put a little more subtext into it than is really there, but I'm wondering if you think she knew he was bad from the get-go. I didn't get that. Okay. Maybe I'm just making that up. I will retroactively accept that to make me enjoy the story more. (laughs) (laughs) She notices the boots and and has previously checked out the post office. I I don't know. But enjoyable and good action sequences. That's literally what I was going to say. This story's saving graces are its action pieces. Yeah. Roping buffaloes and bison. It's harder to rope that than the Washington Monument. (laughs) 
you know, th- these things are moving. Bat Cousins, if you love the story, comment. I don't want to say defend your story. <laughs> it's a five. I, and I know we don't really rate the stories or anything. It's fine. I guess good. All right. You want to move on? Yes. Normally, we would go to Gabriel's Horn. But since we have a second new story, we will wait until after that one. Instead, we move on to the Bat Timeline. In this segment, we are going to take a look at the other titles that DC published this month and what the rest of the Batman family was doing at that time. And it's all thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics for April 1976. And I will just put a plug in for Mike's Amazing World. If you go to April of 1976 and just click on DC Comics only, you see every one of the 33 books had a bicentennial tab at the top. And I think that's kind of a neat image. But anyway, let's go to that first Bat book. All right. The first one is Batman number 271. And that is The Corpse King C.O.D. And it's a fantastic cover. Batman is standing atop a statue and all the bad guys are shooting up at him. It's a very directional, pyramidal cover, which is a real art term that has lasted for centuries, which I have just created. Uh, Next up, you've got Brave and the Bold, number 128, starring Batman and Mr. Miracle. Apparently, antagonistically, with Big Barda and Oberon freezing the two of them on the cover. This is a fun one. It's Bob Haney, Jim Perro, and Batman and Mr. Miracle. They really leaned into the escape artist and had to escape a bunch of tracks. I read it the other night. It's a fun little story. The next book is Detective Comics number 461 and features two stories. The first one is Batman, Bruce Wayne, Bait, and a Bat Trap. And then the second story features Tim Trench, Mm. the Moneybag Caper. And I did not do any of my research, so I literally have no idea who Tim Trench is based on the cover. I guess he's a Western detective. He's some sort of a detective. I think he was a Dick Giordano thing. He was, you know, non-superpowered. And he had a few appearances in Detective, as I recall, but I don't think anything very memorable. And any Tim Trench fans out there, feel free (laughs) to blast us in the comments if you want to defend Tim Trench. And the great thing is this cover of Detective 461 was filmed in Baltimore because it's (laughs) Batman in a sewer filled with rats all over. (laughs) And if Baltimore is known for anything, it's known for The Wire. We own this city and the rats. Next one is Joker number eight, guest starring the Scarecrow. I read this, I think, last night, and I've forgotten everything about it already, other than the Scarecrow (laughs) is in it. Our next issue is Justice League of America number 132. And the story is The Beasts Who Fault Like Men. And the featured characters are Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, Aquaman, Green Arrow, Adam, Hawkman, Black Canary, and Elongated Man with a guest star of Supergirl, who is shown fourth hero on the cover. Very, very little. And I thought, oh, well, maybe it's a two-parter and the last issue, you know, she was front and set. No. So I don't understand why is she so small on the cover? However, the nice thing is it is one of those covers we love where it's the good side running against the bad side and there's going to be a cataclysmic event when they clash. So it is a great pose, great cover, but Supergirl should be bigger. And then the last Bat title was World's Finest, number 239. And it has Superman and Batman, of course, guest starring Gold of the Metal Men. So you don't see the Metal Men getting solo action very much. So I remember thinking that was pretty cool when I was a kid. And it's a pretty neat cover where Gold is detaching Batman from the life support system in the hospital. I remember this being cool and thinking, oh, that's kind of neat that Gold was 
I don't know if they're trying to set him up for being a, a bigger star or, or what, but I did think that was neat. All right, that's it for the bat titles. Sean, do you want to give your picks for the rest of them? Absolutely. Paul and I each have $5 allowance, and we are at the newsstand this month. We're going to tell you the titles that we are going to buy. So I'm up first, and I'm going to get Action Comics number 461, and that has Superman with Kill Me or Leave Me and Perry White with the toughest newsboy in town. And it's a cool cover because there's some little tough kid and he's throwing tomatoes at a Superman poster. Yeah, that's a really good one. That I'm not usually a huge fan of Bob Oskner. I mean, he did a lot of Supergirl. It's a very striking cover. So I had that on my list too. And the next one on my pre-pull list, before there were pull lists, is All-Star Comics with the Super Squad. And that, of course, is the quote-unquote new JSA title, Justice Society. Love them. There's the villain on the main cover at the side of a building, and he's zapping Dr. Fate, and Golden Age Green Lantern is coming in to save him. The next one is a beloved Digest, but not the DC Digest because they hadn't started yet. And it's Archie Comics Digest. And there are probably 132 Archie stories in that book. The next one is a gold key comic. Now, I will be honest, I kind of hate gold key comics because their art is always horrible. But this is Bullwinkle and Rocky, and I love Bullwinkle. And I'm kind of thinking maybe if they carry over some of the humor of the show, the artwork won't matter so, so much. Well, that one's not technically a box cover. I'm looking at it. I did not pick this one, but it does have a three separated parts of the cover. That doesn't turn you off. In this case, I will allow it. You will allow it. Okay. Much how the show was segmented, I will allow it in this okay, case. Fair and from one box cover that I approve of to another box cover I approve of, it's DC Superstars number five. Yeah. And this is featuring The Flash. And we get the Flash in The Day Flash Aged 100 Years, Kid Flash in The Midnight Peril, and Flash Deal Me from the Bottom. And that's a Golden Age Flash story. And I love Golden Age Flash so, so much. Yeah, I had that one on my list. I had this comic and that one was where I would have read all those stories for the first time. You said it before, these reprint books were instrumental in reading about the history of the DCU and the Marvel Universe, to be honest with you. Across the early history of DC, I think Flash was served really well with reprints in books like this and the Digest. I'm really surprised he never had a treasury of his own because he, he really had great reprint stories. The next one is a fun change of pace and that's Hot Stuff, The Little Devil, number 135. I always like to dip my hand into the Harvey-verse every now and then. My next pick, we already spoke about, and that is The Joker with the Scarecrow mm -hmm. and Justice League. I would have purchased that as well. The next one is our favorite B-O-N-K-E-R-S title, The Secret Society of Supervillains, number two. <laughs> yes. Captain Comet returns. No man shall I call master. And he's smacking Green Lantern around right on the jaw. I love it. You know, it's interesting because I had no idea who Captain Comet was. I'm not sure anybody had any idea who Captain Comet was because I looked it up. So this is April of 1976, Captain Comet's last appearance was in Strange Adventures number 49 from 1954. <laughs> so 22 years between appearances for Captain Comet. The next story I'm going to pick, and I wouldn't have picked it at the time because I was quote unquote too cool, but I now am enamored of Spidey Super Stories. I don't have any of them. And I can tell you if they would, re like how the Super Friends recently had those two beautiful hardback. Oh my God. If they would reprint the Spidey Super Stories like that, I would buy them in a minute. They are very simplistic story. The Super Friends stories are much better. 
right? Because they have on a whole, not all the super friend stories are great, but they're all very enjoyable. These are very easy reader type with like three words and a word balloon and stuff like that. But they are super fun. I will grant you that. My final pick is Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 218. I am not going to list all 138 members of the Legion that are in this issue. But I picked this issue because I unironically love, love, lust. Tyrox uniform. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) I pray for the day I am at a convention. And I see a cosplayer dressed up as Tyrock. The most amazing thing about my monthly pool list is generally I have $5. That $5, I'm going to spend that $5. But for once in my life, I'm going to save because my picks only add up to $375. And I'm going to save the rest for something else. So not counting the ones we both had. I'm going to back us up to the beginning of the alphabet. Adventure Comics number, uh, what is it? 446. Let me tell you something. That is a box cover that works. Yeah, yeah. You've got Aquaman on the side, riding his seahorse, holding a giant American flag with the logo Adventure Comics starring Aquaman sort of superimposed on top of the flag. That is an amazing cover. And inside the box, you've got Aqualad being menaced by the stingrays i guess and aquaman going after uh, black manta that is a fantastic cover you got everybody and the story even has a guest appearance by robin oh we should have put that in about timeline <laughs> i guess maybe we should have so i outsmarted myself next up i have amazing spider-man number 158 spider-man and doc ock battling while the ghost of hammerhead menaces aunt may can't beat that this isn't long after len ween had started on the title great storyline with ross andrew art he had just come back from doing the superman versus spider-man treasure and then I continued to root for the Engelhart Perez Avengers. This issue is number 149, part of that Serpent Crown story. And then I have Fantastic Four, number 172. Got Bill Mantlo, but once again, George Perez art, although with a Kirby cover, which I would not have appreciated back in the day. I think it's a little busy for a Kirby cover, but the headshots are nice. Got the floating heads. And then probably my favorite of the month, there's a crossover this month, Sean, between Marvel Team Up and Marvel 2-in-1. And it's Spider-Man and the Thing versus the Basilisk. And I very much remember that. I'm pretty sure that was the first issue of Marvel 2-in-1 I probably got because it was a crossover with Marvel Team Up. Honorable mention, and I'm shocked you didn't pick one of these, Sean. There are 12, count them, 12 Richie Rich comics (laughs) this month. And I am not kidding, listeners. There are 12 titles starring Richie Rich that came out in April of 1976. And then finally, Superman number 301. Again, we talked about number 300 last month. We missed that in our bi-monthly schedule. It has a great storyline. He's battling Solomon Grundy. I think this was at the time when they were claiming there's an Earth 1 Solomon Grundy as well as an Earth 2 Solomon Grundy. Great image on the front uh, by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, phrased his name. Those are my picks. I think it added up to about $4. Breaking news, this just in. This is not something we went back and re-edited. Because uh-uh. in my notes, I had that there were 13 Richie Rich comics. And of course, I always call because if I'm questioning, he's correct. However, there are 12 Richie Rich titled books, but there is a Harvey Collector's Comics number six uh, featuring Richie, Richie Rich. Rich. So he had 13 comics 
more than Batman. That might be more than the entire DC output <laughs> that whole month. Oh my gosh, 13 Richie Rich comments. I guess he was super popular in 1976. What can you say? There's no way about it. There, no doubt about it. Once again, thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, a great source for knowledge and uh, research, but also just super fun. You can definitely get lost just clicking around in there for sure. Ready to move on to our second story, Sean? Absolutely. The second story is the start of a multi-issue epic, and it is starring Robin, but the first appearance of the title character, The Joker's Daughter. A simple eight-pager written by Bob Rosakis with art by Irv Novick and Frank McLaughlin. And it was later reprinted three different places. Teen Titans, The Bronze Age Omnibus, which tells you something. Batman, Arkham, The Joker's Daughter's trade paperback from 2018. And then Robin, The Bronze Age Omnibus as well. Hudson University is in mourning. One of their most famous alumni has passed away. Mystery author Christine Ariadne has left her alma mater with a sealed room with her last manuscript with instructions only to open it 13 days after her death. Of course, our favorite HU student Dick Grayson's on hand for the big reveal, but when they open the door, the room is empty. Someone has stolen the manuscript. That someone swings into the room and we are introduced to the Joker's daughter, who is decked out just like her eponymous father in his purple outfit. Robin chases her, but she escapes, of course, by using a powder puff to counteract Robin's batarang. <laughs> the next day, Robin and Chief McDonald are surprised to find out that the Joker's daughter has offered to return the manuscript, but only to Robin. He agrees to meet her, but at the rendezvous that night, she indicates that she will return exactly what she stole nothing she evades robin on the top of the bridge in the scene that we saw on the cover and then she disappears but the teen wonder figures out that she was actually telling the truth christine ariadne could not bear to kill off her favorite character so she had concocted the whole mystery and the joker's daughter had just taken advantage of it in order to make her debut and to meet robin but what was her motivation we will have to wait to find out for future issues of the batman family so, Sean, what did you think of the Joker's daughter? This is one of the things that Batman family is most well remembered for. Now, I, I can rattle off a ton of stories that I love and remember about Batman family. But generally, I think when people remember Batman family, they remember the introduction of the Joker's daughter. And she is like a fantastic character. One thing, though, is a woman in a fitted suit for the female, it always looks great. And she looks fantastic. She looks like the Joker, but she also does look feminine. It's great. The story is great because you don't really know what's going on. You know, how, how is she the daughter, you know? And she always has these fantastic tricks, very similar to my beloved Batwoman's purse. <laughs> Joker's daughter has all these little like funny things. If I am going to fault this, and this is really like a super technicality, I do think she needed a name, like Jokesy, the Joker's daughter, or something like that. Just saying the Joker's daughter, the Joker's daughter. So I wish she maybe would have had a name. But then they wouldn't have been able to use the same logo. <laughs> yeah, you could have like the name above it and then the Joker's daughter. Yeah, but that that is a super minor quibble on my part. This is an intriguing story because we don't really get the whole story. And I think yeah. that was part of the motivation. Bob Rosakis is setting up a storyline that's going to last multiple months and obviously spill into the Teen Titans. The splash page is really kind of neat. You get a good sort of straight on view of her, Robin, and, and they're going, hmm, hmm, what, what is going on? So I do like the splash page. Irv Novick is very recognizable 
to me, to my youth. He, I think, is a bit underappreciated. I was always a little ashamed to say, a little disappointed that I wasn't getting Neil Adams or Jim Aparo or Marshall Rogers or somebody like that from the 70s. But, you know, I always like it. It's clean. The action sequences are good. It's got a good storytelling sense. But let me tell you something. I had started reading and collecting some of the very early issues of The Brave and the Bold from the late 50s. And he drew a lot of those stories from that and the covers beautiful go look up some of the pre-hero covers listeners on the brave and the bold and they're mostly done by Irv Novick and really did a great job let's move on to the beats first I struggled as I reread this I struggled with the logic like how did she know there was going to be no book there but then the story doesn't actually depend on that right I mean if she was going to steal the book she would have stolen it and then given it back to Robin and she's like oh well I can still pretend I stole the book and still accomplish all my goals I do think my favorite part of it is her gimmicks bottom of page two she blows the bubble gum and it's got gas and she laughs and escapes powder puff to counteract the batarang i thought was pretty funny i do like how rosakis tries to give hudson university a little personality it talks about the unispan bridge and then we get a footnote about the unispan bridge which is fantastic the hudson university unispan an enclosed pedestrian bridge spanning interstate 24 linking hu's north and south campuses now a lot of colleges have real things like this, which I think is really kind of neat. That is based on a real university. Of course, I should have done my research before. I apologize, cousins. And I don't know if it's Bob Rosakis's university that he went to or like a university that was big in his hometown or something like that. I think one of the future letter columns for Batman Family, which we'll get into at the time, mentions it. I think the signature moment, Sean, is the lipstick scene. I think that's a riot. First, Robin grabs the hands and they're blasting off like little rockets and he gets rid of them. But while he's dealing with that, she takes a lipstick out of her pocket or purse or something and shoots plastic or something lips that <laughs> attach themselves to Robin's face. He's like, what in the world's going on? And he's like, I can't bring myself to hit a girl. And she knows it. <laughs> Even though they're called lipstick bullets, what I imagine is kind of like, you know, how like when you're walking in the woods and you get the sticky things. Yeah. That's what I think. Imagine that all over your face. It would hurt. Yeah. In my mind, I've no prize. That's what it feels like. So if I had a little nitpick to the story, I think this was Razak is trying to give Robin a little personality, maybe differentiating him some from Batman. The bottom of the next page where Dick falls off the bridge and he does an acrobatic double flip and lands on his feet. And I don't know how high the bridge is let's say it's 30 40 feet high and he's like after my parents were killed in a fall from a circus trapeze i developed an acrobatic routine that would have saved them but i never thought I'd, i would need it myself i didn't quite understand why he had felt like he had to put that in there i mean wouldn't have had to save himself like that he could have used his bat robe or something but i thought that was interesting i think it's exactly like you said yeah like it doesn't need to be there i do think though it kind of adds something to the character of robin differentiates himself theoretically robin i don't want to say Robin could have saved his parents. I think it's a case of where Robin's parents' death didn't affect Robin in the same way it did Batman, right, certainly because right. Batman was there, but also he had a way to cope with it. Like, oh, you know, if my parents would have known this was happening, they could have developed this. So I think it, it's it's something that's not as heavy. So I think you're right. I think trying to do something like that, it just, it didn't quite connect, I thought. And then the last part, I do think it's a little bit of a leap on Robin's part to say, hey, you know what? There's no way she stole it. Therefore, there was never any book. I do think that that's a, you know, a little bit of rushed on the ending. I think I almost would have liked it. And again, story-wise, I understand maybe why this couldn't happen. But they said the 13th day after her death, the room was going to be unlocked. I think maybe 13 days after that, 
there would be a letter sent to the New York Times or the Hudson Bugle, <laughs> the Hudson Herald, maybe saying I've presented this final mystery because there is no book, something like that, maybe. That's a good way to do it. So before we leave this story, we could have talked about this in the bat branding section, but we decided to talk about it after the story because it's sort of connected to Robin. So the page immediately following the Robin story is an extra called Robin's cast of characters. And we get three little paragraphs and three portraits, one of Lori Elton, one of Chief Frank McDonald, and one of Lieutenant Rick Tatum. I thought it was interesting. I I'd never knew that Lori was a commuter, mm-hmm. unlike Dick, who lives on campus. So that was a little tidbit. Chief Frank McDonald is Lori's uncle. I did not recall that. Is that ever a story point in the future? I have not read ahead. I can't remember. Well, it's funny. They do talk about it, but I didn't know that Robin didn't know that he's her uncle. I don't remember being like a secret. Oh, don't tell Dick. Dick can't know. Like, I don't remember that, but I did know it was an uncle and niece relationship. Very good. And then this guy, Rick Tatum, I think he's kind of a more, apparently he was in the parking lot bandit story. And I read that story like a couple months ago when we were preparing for one of these. I don't remember Rick Tatum being in the story. All right, so we're going to move on to our next break segment. We're going to take a trip to Gabriel's Horn, which, of course, was the hip-hop and hangout for the Teen Titans in the 1970s. We talk about the most 1970s moment in the, in this case, either the Batgirl or the Robin story. So, Sean, what ones do you have? I have three today. The first one is the story we just talked about, where the mystery author dies. Now, at the time, I didn't know this at all, but this obviously was inspired by the death of Agatha Christie, who had died in January of 76. That was mine too. A couple of points on that one. Apparently, Agatha Christie also got tired of Hercule Poirot, but refused to kill him off. And then she invented Miss Marple, I think. I don't know. I'm sure there are scholars out there yelling at their phones saying, no, 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 it went like this. But she did seal two novels in a bank vault and she made the copyrights to her daughter and her husband to provide each with some kind of insurance. When she died, her daughter authorized the publication of them in uh, 1975 and 1976. They were more popular because the film version of Murder on the Orient Express came out in 1974. I have two small ones as well. The next one is in the Batgirl story, Babs Cowperson, cowgirl fashion look. <laughs> because it. definitely Western wear was popular in the 70s. Uh, you had, you know, the big country crossover with Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton, like all the country artists were in the pop. So definitely like that look was in. Yeah. Now my third 70s moment is from the Batgirl story. And that is actually returning a political bribe. <laughs> That's excellent. And I'm sure bribes were accepted in the 70s. But here, apparently in the 70s, it was in fashion to return the bribe and not be bought by your constituents. Similarly, my political barb there is that when Bab comes back, because she exposed Jack Lightfoot in a newspaper, she reads in the last panel, House votes a Copper Valley to the Indians. And so yeah, I guess in the 1970s, Congress occasionally voted on evidence and not just <laughs> blindly following their party. So there we go. And the newspaper itself. We have newspaper, by the way, in both stories. We have Babs at the end. Oh, yeah. And the newspaper clipping in the beginning of the Robin story. That is a great catch absolutely all right let's go on to our 
third story. Our third story stars Alfred Beagle, which means HBO Max is going to have to change the name of Pennyworth <laughs> to Beagle. The title is In the Soup. It is epic blockbuster of four pages. The writer is Joe Samanchin. Yeah, we had him. We had him before. <laughs> Penciler is Jerry Robinson. And this originally appeared in Batman number 32 from 1945. The Adventures of Alfred in the Soup. The continuing story of a butler who's gone to the doll. In this solo outing, Bruce Wayne lends Alfred out to a society matron who won't trust her dog, Tricky Woo, or um, I mean Chumley, to just anyone for care. On their nightly walk, the dognamic duo are passing by Sambo's special soups when they hear a cry for help. The pair rush in and interrupt a burglary. The thieves make away with thousands of cans of tortoise soup. Alfred correctly surmises that only a rival soup company could make use of the delicacy and heads on over to Fernley's Fine Soups with Chumley's nose leading the way. Inside of the other company, Alfred and the police find the criminals, apprehend them, and then we go back to Wayne Manor to find out that Ace has nothing to worry about because Chumley was actually just smelling a sausage trail that Alfred had laid out. Paul, what do you think of this blockbuster? I think it's cute, obviously, overall. You know, dogs are the greatest creation on this earth, right? Yeah. <laughs> Even <yay>. Chumley. <laughs> yes. But I do like how Alfred actually solves the case on this one. I thought that was great. Back in these stories, it doesn't make sense to me to make Alfred stumbling. It works better if he is a detective right. and has right. some of those traits. I guess maybe they didn't want that so that Bruce is the top detective. The three words I think that describe this story are delightful <laughs> it's just so charming and so cute and he does alfred does use his brains and not even just to figure out this crime but he needs chumley to go over there so he puts the sausage trail down because chumley can't really smell them out but he can smell sausages my favorite part the part where i laughed out loud was when he's in the factory and he trips over an actual tortoise <laughs> Like, do they just keep tortoises wandering around the factory? Now we're low on tortoise. Let's get this one. String them up. <laughs> this was the creation of the free range movement in soup making. <laughs> yeah, I like all that. Obviously, the art is of the time, but I do really like a lot of the facial expressions. And mm -hmm. I didn't like how, once again, Bruce kind of a jerk to Alfred. He doesn't believe him and that he actually solved the case. But again, these Alfred stories were meant to be a little humorous interlude. Not that the Batman stories were all that grim and gritty. I do have to make a shout out to all of our bat cousins who are soup aficionados of the 40s. Samble's special soup is obviously Campbell's special soup, but Fernley's fine <laughs> soup. What all of our listeners, I'm calling out to you to do the research that I didn't, because I guess I could have looked up soups of the 40s. I don't I don't remember any kind of brand name that is like Fernley's. So if you know and are a collector and have 123 cans of these soups, we would love to see your collection. We'll put your pictures in our photo gallery. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So that was fun. But let's move on to that branding. So in this nostalgia filled segment, we will take a look at the non-story pages in the issue. Letters, pages, PSAs, and ads abound in the Bronze Age. Sean, do you want to kick us off? We'll kick it off with the inside cover. And that, of course, is a hostess ad starring Superman. Superman overhears some aliens and their plot to take over the Earth because of how we are. 
which, you know, but <laughs> Superman points out that we as a species are worth saving because we make hostess cupcakes. <laughs> I think as reasons go, that's viable. I do like the alien's face in the bottom left of that one where he's like, oh man, this is good. I think hostess cupcakes might be like catnip or cocaine to these aliens because this alien is wigging out. My next ad is a super celebration of the Bicentennial. And what better way to embrace the Bicentennial and create goodwill and camaraderie among your readers than to trick them? (laughs) Because readers, if you purchase the beautiful Superman treasury here, Sean, Eagle is a fantastic Superman treasury. As I have said on other podcasts on the Fire Water Network, if you purchase the Superman Salutes the Bicentennial Treasury, you've been tomahawked. (laughs) Because Superman appears on two full pages of this treasury and then maybe like the very top of some stories of all tomahawk reprints (laughs) this was such a letdown now the good thing is i've told the story about how i got an ebay lot of treasuries luckily i didn't have this as a kid this was included in that lot and thank god because i think i would have paged through this book and see what a disappointment again apologies to all of the millions of Tomahawk Tomahawk fans fans are going to roast us in the comments, I'm sure. Deservedly so. However, reading the stories, it's fine, but it is not what you expect from this cover. I'm pretty lenient when it comes to covers not illustrating part of the story. Like we joked a little bit about the Batgirl portion of this issue's cover. Right. But that one is really bait and switch. (laughs) Now, luckily, DC more then made up for it with the other (laughs) treasury that month because this it really is fantastic this is the justice league treasury it's the famous cover of all of the heroes running out from the symbol on the backside. it's the justice society version so Mm -hmm. that's that's beautiful beautiful artwork and most importantly to me there is a feature inside about the super friends it has artwork from the tv show like model sheets from alex toth as superman laura and jor-el ma and pa kent and then in the middle of the book the center spread is like a pretty famous piece of the justice society in their satellite and that's by alston and giordano and then the next two pages this i love had more model sheets from the show and it has plastic man green arrow who guested and the flash who guested on the first season but it also has an Alex Toth version of the Golden Age Flash. Mm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I love that. So honestly, that one image of the Golden Age Flash would have been worth buying this treasury for me. The next ad I'm going to talk about is something called Comic Book Savers. And I guess they're like heavy-duty binders. And they had, I guess, plastic inserts that you would slide your comics in, which That's fine. The only reason I'm talking about this is because it says it includes superhero stickers. Mm -hmm. And they are, I'm assuming these are the stickers that were advertised elsewhere with all the really famous superhero poses with Aquaman where he's swimming, where it looks like he's like breaking his back. 
and Wonder Wonder Woman twirling her lasso. You have Superman breaking the chain. Batman, where it looks like he's tippy toe. The Fantastic Supergirl, her hip cocked to the side. Maybe the binders were worth it. I would get it from the stickers. What I don't get is how it claims that you can read the comics without taking them out of the binder and without damaging the comics. So I'm trying to figure out how that works because if there's plastic sleeves you can put the comics in, that's fine. You take the comic out, you read it, put it back in, great. But you'd have to take them out. So I, I just don't understand the pitch. I almost wonder in our library, in our school library, when I was a kid, you had the newspapers that were on that wooden bar and they would like slide it down in the middle. So I wonder if it's, is it something like that? So you kind of put the center fold of the comic over a, a bar in the binder and then you could read the comic. Okay, I'll buy that. Yeah. Oh, okay, mystery. Way to go, Agatha. John. <laughs> Yeah, if anybody has that, we'd love to know. Absolutely. If you're listening to this and know the answer, please do our research work for us that I didn't do. So moving on to the Batmail family, where we get our favorite fetching image of the pair at the top of the page. We invite any of the letters writers to ping us if you're listening. Mike White, Fred Schneider, Scott Taylor, Jeff Sporn, Mark McIntyre, the mighty Hackman, or Tom Wayant. A lot of them did like the Robin's White Very Christmas, and this is where we do read about the typo of the title. Fred Schneider points that one out. And then Mike White is a big fan of Lori Elton. So she's the best thing to happen to Dick in a long time. <laughs> and Scott Taylor thinks it's funny that Diamond Lily and her driver didn't realize there were blanks in the guns. And then there's the usual stuff about, hey, we want this in the book, Batgirl, Batman. Somebody else wants Batgirl solo novel. Then so people are weighing in on what they want to see as the main feature in the book. So that's kind of fun. I want to point out my favorite letter in this issue is from Fred Schneider, yeah. who is the lead singer of the B-52s. No. I am not saying that it is the same Fred Schneider that is the lead singer of the B-52s who wrote this letter. But in my head canon, it is. <laughs> but he just wanted Batgirl and Robin to head off to the love shack. And if, <laughs> and if that wasn't great enough, which it is great enough, but I need to quote directly from Fred's letter because he wrote about the Robin's white, very Christmas story. But the rest of the story made perfect sense. And even as I read it, I knew it was a Christmas classic destined for reprinting in some future Christmas with the superheroes. And he was right. And now I am going to talk for 20 minutes about <laughs> the best of DC Digest number 22, Christmas with the Superheroes. Which does in fact have it in there. Starting on page 70 is, corrected, Robin's Very White Christmas. So not only is this letter writer the lead singer of the B-52s, but he's clairvoyant because he knew that six years in the future, DC would switch from treasuries to digests and reprint that Robin story. You know, I can only follow that up with right after the Alfred story, there is a stunning feature called Curious Crime Capers, which was about as filler material as you can possibly get. It's a one page and I don't know whether they're true-ish stories or just gags or what. I'll just read one of them. In Dayton, Kentucky, an escaped prisoner who was recaptured two hours later explained I've got claustrophobia. I couldn't stand being locked up. I don't know who found that knee-slappingly funny, but that's a page. Granted, they are called curious crime capers, not comical. <laughs> okay. And, and actually, I was impressed with this because just kind of looking at it, 
I thought it was going to be one of these dumb things where like in Peoria, Illinois, it's illegal to put pennies in your ears, walk backwards <laughs> and say hello three times. There's all these dumb laws that aren't enforced. Right. So I'm glad it wasn't that. Uh, and then the last feature we want to talk about is my favorite. DC salutes the Bicentennial with a great free offer. And this is where you have an ad and Superman's introducing this, telling you to collect all 33 of these titles of which Batman Family number six was the fifth one on the list. And if you clip off the top and send it in at least 25 of them, you don't have to go all 33. But if you were able to collect 25 of them, you would receive a metal Superman belt buckle. And I'm looking at my copy that I had when I was 10 years old. And I have in ink checked off the ones that I had at the time. And I didn't have anywhere near 25 of them. I had maybe 15 of them here. I since broke down and bought them all and about five or six years ago, took one July and I read all 33 of them. And that was kind of a fun thing to do. And then after prepping for this show with Sean, I broke down (laughs) after 30 some years and finally on eBay bought the belt buckle, paid a whopping $17 for it. And it is now a prized possession of mine. So I'm going to actually scan this page where I've checked off the ones I had. Even I mistakenly checked off Sean, the Tarzan family. And then I I scratched it off. I said, no, I don't don't really actually have that one. (laughs) I am curious. Once again, I am calling upon my back cousins. So it's great that you get this free belt buckle by buying 25 different comics. Longtime listeners will know I'm horrible at math. Math and I are not friends at all. What is the lowest price point that you would have to buy 25 different mm. so so here action comics is listed at 30 cents but batman family was 50 cents so looking at these books these 33 books what are the 25 cheapest titles that you could <laughs> buy you have to add them and i can't add so i'm calling out to listeners to find because maybe they did pay $17 for that belt buckle. I'll have to calculate that for you and I'll put it in the comments. All right. So thanks for indulging us, everybody. I think we're ready to move on to our fourth story, The New Crimes of the Mad Hatter. And it is the Mad Hatter's second appearance, starring Batman and Robin, of course. 12 pages, written by Dave Wood and illustrated by Sheldon Moldoff and Charles Paris. And it originally appeared in Batman number 161 from 1964. So a little before the Batman 66 craze, so it's still kind of 50 style, but as you will see, a little bit silly. And in fact, in my research, I found out that the episode where the Mad Hatter is introduced on Batman 66 was inspired actually by this story. So watch out, Gotham. Jervis Tetch, the Mad Hatter, has escaped from prison. Robin exclaims that he sure was a zany criminal, a hobby robber who kept a crime collection of bizarre stolen hats. Now, if you can't hear Burt Ward saying that, (laughs) you're listening to the wrong podcast. Anyway, while the dynamic duo begins their search, a fire truck pulls up to the Gotham Trust Company. The firemen collect all the cash in bags in order to save it from the fire. But the fire engine takes off with the cash. It is the Mad Hatter wearing a fireman's hat. Batman and Robin show up and save the money, but of course, Tetch gets away. Seems he has come up with a new MO. Instead of stealing hats, like he did in his first appearance, he is now using trick hats 
to commit a crime. What a genius. His next crimes involve him dressing up as an archer and then for the hat trick, dressing up as a chef. And Batman figures out that the crimes are themed by the professions of the jury members who put him in jail after his first crime spree. Batman then correctly anticipates his next victim at a bowling alley. However, Mad Hatter gets away again and Batman and Robin are almost done in by a sprang bowling ball. The Mad Hatter gloats to the mock jury of mannequins in hats that he has set up in his hideout. But his goons want to stop now because they have enough money and they realize that Batman and Robin are now on to their pattern. But Jervis boasts that no way they will figure out his next crime or he will eat his hat. But of course they do. The fifth juror wore many hats. He was a florist, an importer, and a rabbit breeder. That's a classic combination of professions, of course. Triple threat. For triple threat. But the world's greatest detective surmised, of course, that a flower bouquet, a silk scarf, and a rabbit meant that he would commit the crime as a magician. Whew, he pulled that right out of his hat. I mean, cowl. Nonetheless, the Mad Hatter still almost escapes in a balloon, but Robin borrows Grandma Marion's hat pin and throws it to pierce the balloon as they corral the Hatter. Marion was so excited that she let Robin keep it as a souvenir of this adventure. And hat's the end of this story. So, Sean, what did you think of this captivating story? Oh, my God. I love it, love it, love it so much. Say whatever you want about stories of the time and the Mad Hatter as a villain. But I will tell you one thing. We talked about the signal man and what nothing character that is. This is exactly <laughs> the opposite. This is why I love Batman villains that have a strong sense of what they are, who they are, how they are. He has no identity problem. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, he he is on point with branding. This isn't the Joker. This isn't Riddler. This isn't Kite Man. So honestly, when we were divvying up stories, like I saw Mad Hatter, I kind of rolled my eyes. And I'm like, oh, well, maybe I can trick Paul and I'll do the Alfred story. But man, I got the wrong end of the deal because this story, I loved it. He's thought out everything. I And the jury... Yeah. The, the mannequin jury with the hat. <laughs> oh my God. Follow your passion. Follow your obsession. It, do what you want and you'll never work a day in your life. Mad Hatter has it figured out. I love it. The bowling ball cracked me up. <laughs> I like how they acknowledge that he's got a new MO, right? I guess Jarvis figured the old one was limiting. <laughs> <laughs> just stealing hats. How many really super valuable hats are there, I guess? But I have to ask you the serious question. What was your favorite hat? Oh, hands down, bowler. A bowler oh, hat. Oh, really? Like I absolutely love bowler hats. Okay. It's such a traditional, like, English look. You always see Pet Shop Boys in No, no, I'm in this story. Does he wear a bowler oh, hat? Oh, yeah, at, at the bowling alley. Oh, at the bowling alley, of course, yeah. No, my favorite was the Robin Hood. <laughs> he shoots the arrow. It, what he steals, listeners, is a quiver of golden arrows. <laughs> Which was going to be the prize of an archery contest. I love it. That's Earth 83's green arrow, golden arrow. Golden arrow, I guess so. Now you were talking about what my favorite hat was, and it definitely is the bull. However, we often talk about the fetching background Robin with the Mike Grell. I will tell you one thing. That magician is very dashing. Oh my God, like he's so handsome. Like look at, <laughs> these don't have page numbers. It, so it's the panel where like they open the vault and then he takes off his hat and puts his- He it, takes his it, gun it, out of the, the hat. The gun. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that picture. Oh my, he's like Errol Flynn and Gene Kelly. Who I love. Oh my God, like he's so dashing. And he definitely has a goatee, is not a shadow. 
So Martin, just so you know, that magician definitely has a goatee. And the other thing too is Mad Hatter's face mask. Man, this is Mission Impossible, Black Widow. This is that level in the 40s. And he is fantastic. Yeah, I think it's hysterical. He's going to get away in a balloon at the end, Sean, that has enough helium in it to lift a person. And Robin is able to take a pin out of a lady's hat and throw the pin up, you know, I don't know, 20 feet, 30 feet up in the air to pop the balloon. That's one flimsy balloon. From that one, anytime I read any story that is set in the Batcave, I'm not looking at the dinosaur. I'm not looking at the coin. I need to see that hat pin. You want to find the hat pin. Oh, my goodness. I did not expect this to be as humorous, as enjoyable overall as it was. I did enjoy this story quite a bit. I agree. And cousins, if you think I am making fun, I am not making fun of the story. I genuinely felt this was fantastic. I loved it. So I want to give some props. Sean, if you're done talking about the actual plot, I want to give some props to the author of this story, Dave Wood. And I also decided what I'm going to start doing with starting with this episode is I'm going to put some of my sources in the show notes, some links to them to give credit where credit is due. And so most of what I've gathered up here about Dave Wood comes from Mike's Amazing World with his credits, of course, Grand Comics Database, and then a link from the League of Comic Geeks, and then another link from pulpartists.com. That link was actually for his brother, who's actually a bit more famous slash infamous than himself. So hang on to your hats, Bat Cousin, because this is a story about Dave Wood. Now, it's primarily about Dave Wood, but I could not tell it without telling also the story of his two brothers. And to start off, even with his father, Dave Wood's father was a physician at an insurance company. But in 1918, the Boston Globe reporting that Dr. Severo P. Silva, a well-known physician of New Bedford, was arrested and charged with forgery and larceny. He is alleged to engage in unsuccessful speculation. This is before Dave Wood was born. After this scandal, the Silva family left New Bedford and moved to Arlington, Massachusetts, where the father founded the Hamilton Drug Company. Alas, Severo could not keep out of trouble. And on June 27, 1925, Boston Globe once again reported that Dr. Silva was charged with $42,679 theft. According to the arresting officer, Dr. Silva embezzled money under false pretenses from the United Drug Company Further investigation resulted in grand larceny charges of $170,000. Let's think about this. We're talking now over $200,000 in 1925. So that's some real money. During the trial, this, this, this is the sad part. The doctor's wife was called to testify that she gave her wedding ring to one of the complainants to forestall Dr. Silva's arrest. Ouch. <laughs> in February of 1926, he was given six to 10 years in prison for this. But in September 1926, the family's youngest son, David M. Silva, was born. So that means our author was born while his dad was in the slammer. So that's just part one of, of his life. So by 1929, Dr. Silva was released from jail. Unfortunately, our story doesn't get a lot more fun. In December of 1931, Severo was found by his wife lying unconscious on the floor of the garage with all the windows and doors closed while the car was running. Silva was only 40 years old. Bob was 14. Dick, his middle brother, was 12. And Dave, our author, was five at the time his father committed suicide. In 1932, Mrs. Minnie McSilva filed a petition in Middlesex Court to change her surname to Wood. She claimed that the associations connected with the name Silva are not conducive to the best mental and social well-being of herself and her family. And she explained that Wood is an exact translation from the name Silva. So apparently in Portuguese, the Word Selva means woods. 
And so then after court approval, the mother and her three sons became known as Minnie Wood, Bob Wood, Dick Wood, and our author, Dave Wood. Moving on, 1937, the oldest brother, Bob, first started his collaboration with Charles Biro. Later on, Bob and Dick, the middle brother, would work with Biro and Lev Gleason on famous titles like Crime Does Not Pay. 1943, Dave Wood, our author, now 17, he completed the 11th grade, after which he left school and joined his older brothers in New York City. And at that point, he started working on the comic book and comic strip industry. A year later, in 1944, apparently after he turned 18, Dave entered military service, stationed in Germany, where he worked as an army reporter for the Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Forces. That's near the tail end of the war, right? After the war, Dave was honorably discharged and returned to New York, where he again joined with his brothers as a co-writer of comic books. Dave sometimes used the pen name of D.W. Holes. Holes, H-O-L-Z, is actually the German word for, guess what? Wood. So a lot of wood in this family. 1951, the Daily News, New York Daily News, was asking sort of man in the street questions. And Dave Wood was interviewed on the street of New York. And the question was, what is the closest you've ever come to being enticed into matrimony? That was the question. And he says, well, the closest call I've had happened in Germany. I was a newspaper man. She was lovely and my intentions were serious. But I was saved from matrimony by a job in the United States. I hope to go back someday and meet her again. I'm sorry I left her. Of course, this is seven years later. <laughs> he hasn't been that sorry. <laughs> he hasn't been back since then. All right. So from the funny to the serious, his oldest brother, Bob Wood, 1958, in August of 1958, was arrested for murder of his girlfriend, Violet Phillips. He claimed to have accidentally killed her during a drunken brawl. And this was nationwide news. I had heard about the story over the years. I will make a plug for a book called Crime Does Not Pay, Blackjack and Pistol Whip. It's a trade paperback where I first read this story about Bob Wood. It took me a while to put it all together, but there's a lot of real interesting history in the introduction to that book, as well as some of the representative stories. Back to Dave, though, two weeks after the arrest in September of 1958, there was a much heralded first installment of Sky Masters, a syndicated comic strip on the exploration of outer space, of course, written by Dave Wood with art by Jack Kirby. And for good measure, it was inked by Wally Wood. So <laughs> we got lots of wood going on here. This strip ran for three years and IDW has a great compilation of that that has the whole run in it. In 1963, Bob Wood, the older brother, was released from prison. He was unable to resume his career in the comic book industry and instead found a job as a dishwasher at the Melody Diner in Clifton, New Jersey, right next to the Garden State Parkway. Three years later, he died at the age of 49 in a traffic accident. The middle brother, Dick Wood, did have an impressive career. He wrote for Lev Gleason's The Claw and Crime Does Not Pay and stuff like that. He also wrote for DC, wrote some Batman and Robin stories, Green Arrow, Tomahawk, your favorite, Sean, House of Mystery and things like that. Interesting thing about Dick Wood, he wrote the first issue of the Gold Key Star Trek. And unfortunately, he also died young at the age of 50 in 1970. Finally, the author of our story, Dave Wood, also had a very impressive career. Let's focus on that. Good stuff to, to end it. Almost all his story credits were DC, 277 story credits, according to Mike's Amazing World. In the early 50s, he wrote Big Town, including number one. He wrote All-Star Western and other Westerns. He had a story in issue number one, Sean, of Rex, the Wonder Dog. Unfortunately, he did not write Rex. That was all Robert Kaniger. But he wrote stories like The Killer Bear and Secrets of the Silver Coyote. He wrote a lot of Westerns and war comics. His first superhero credit appears to be a Green Arrow story. He also had a story in Batman number 92. Remember, that was the issue that had the first appearance of Ace the Bat Hound. Ooh. He did not write that story, however. 
<laughs> he wrote something called Batman's Guilty Neighbor. He had a long run on Black Hawk, even wrote some Adam Strange and Space Ranger. And one interesting thing that we will see him again next issue because he wrote Detective number 196, which is the first appearance of Dr. Double X who is in the next issue of Batman Family, number seven, that we'll cover next month. And I was a little surprised to read this. I did not know. Apparently he, I'm not sure co-created is the right word, but was involved in the first appearance of the Challengers of the Unknown with Jack Kirby. Mm. If you do all the research, he is credited as the writer of Showcase number six with Jack Kirby art. All the other subsequent appearances of the Challengers in Showcase and the beginning of their own title, all written and drawn by Kirby. This was before the Skymasters. Clearly they knew each other. Maybe he was running into trouble dialoguing or whatever, but he's credited as the writer on the first appearance of the Challengers of the Unknown. In 1959, he co-created with our pal, Sheldon Moldoff, Mr. Zero, later becomes Mr. Freeze. 1965 was a huge year with three big creations for Dave. The first, he created a network favorite, especially for Rob, Ultra, the multi-alien. <laughs> in Mystery in Space number 103 with artist Lee Elias. And he continued to write Ultra, I think for most of the run, if not the whole run in Mystery in Space. Also in 1965, in Strange Adventures number 181 with Carmine Infantino, he co-created Animal Man. <laughs> and then finally, with Jim Mooney in House of Mystery number 156, he co-created Dial H for Hero. In the 60s and such, he moved a lot into unexpected and mystery titles, a little bit of work in the early 70s. And that's where he finally got some, he might've been phasing out of DC because he had three phantom stories for Gold Key. And he also died young at 47 in 1974. So he had a great career. As I said, 277 story credits with all those co-creations. I couldn't really tell his story without intertwining with his brothers, but wow, what an interesting story. I'm, I'm just glad I was able to bring it to listeners. I do recommend that book and its intro. One of the links will be for his brother. And that's got a lot of the history of the father and Bob, the, the murderer. So whew, I need a drink of water. I think we really need to thank cousin Paul, not only for doing all that fantastic research, but for providing the fire and water network with our first pitch to the oxygen true crime network. <laughs> thanks to Dave Wood's family. Before we sign off, as most of our listeners know, running the Fire and Water Podcast Network has gotten more costly over the years as more and more shows were added. So if you're enjoying what you hear on the show or any of the other shows, please consider becoming a patron. We are not all Bruce Wayne, but any small amount you can give helps us defray the cost. To find out how, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. We promise that none of the money will be used to buy Robin Hood caps or bowler hats. <laughs> and thanks. We are now going to play a couple of podcast promos. And when we return, we will read your listener feedback. Who's editing? A thought experiment in which Siskoid and his guests appoint themselves editors of a comic book line at DC Comics. But the joke's on them, because they can only use the characters of a specific issue of Who's Who, and in fact must use them. Great ideas? Yes, we think so. Cool reinventions? Of course. Crisis fatigue? We guarantee it. Who's editing? Now on its own feed, only at the Fire & Water Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. 
In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure. Got to give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. (laughs) Now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about cheers, yeah. That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. (laughs) Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. Welcome back. Before we get started on the feedback, we have two things we'd like to share. The first is the answer to a question we've now heard a couple of times. When does the Batman Family Reunion show come out? It's a simple answer. We are scheduled to come out the first Wednesday of every month. Sean and I work about a month ahead, and then we record the listener feedback a week or two, the episode actually comes out. So for those of you who are going to be guests, we will probably reach out to you about six weeks or so before the drop date of your episode to schedule time to record. The second is more fun and interesting. I found this out since the last time we recorded. Sean, you recall that in issue two, which was the all reprint issue, we had the lead story where Batman and Robin that girl and Robin rather teamed up for the first time when Batman took a header into the swamp. Well, it turns out that the last page that was shown in Batman family number two of that story was not the actual last page of the original story from detective comics, number three sixty nine. I have included that actual page, really half a page in this episode's gallery. And it shows Selena Kyle getting jealous of Batgirl who she thought was trying to horn in on her man. (laughs) It has great Carmine Infantino art, and Selena looks and is getting ready to get the claws out. And what's neat is Batgirl's next appearance was less than one month later in Batman number 197, which featured who else but Catwoman. So this is way before the triangle era of Superman, even. So that story was called Catwoman Sets Her Claws for Batman, and you have Batgirl and Catwoman facing off on the cover. I don't know. I thought that was really cool. Mm-hmm. I can kind of understand why they didn't keep that page because it didn't really affect the story at all. It was just like an intro to the next story. But man, I wish they had. They could have used Catwoman as the villain of the issue instead of whoever we got. I forget who we got in issue number three. I've read the story. It would fit right in with the reprints they were sharing. So what are you going to do? So Sean, you want to start us off now in the feedback for episode number five, which was a princess, a vagabond, and a hound? Yes, I do. In the last episode, I made a joke. Well, stole a joke actually about the movie studio where Batman and Robin fought the Mad Hatter. But I just wasn't sure where I had heard that joke before. But Robert Smith says, you stole that joke from Looney Tunes. I'm pretty sure that in that one cartoon, Porky Pig worked for Wonder Pictures. If it's a good picture, it's a, you know the rest. Well, Robert, I do love Looney Tunes, so that makes perfect sense. Thank you for citing my source that I stole. Then what was cool was Izumu Hadike Yukonori inserted a picture from that very episode, Daffy Duck in Hollywood, 1938, where you see the studio sign for Wonder Pictures. If it's a great picture, it's a wonder right on the entrance to the studio. Yeah, that was very cool. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that, both of you. Moving on to Mike Thomas, who adds, I enjoy this podcast every month. Thank you very much, Mike. 
I like the way you cover the entirety of each issue. From peeking ahead at the covers, I'm pretty sure the first comic book I ever bought was issue number 12 of the Batman family. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I bought it pretty regularly after that, including when it took over Detective Comics. I always enjoyed the Robin Batgirl team-ups. I also love hearing about the older Golden and Silver Age stories in these early issues, like the Ace, the Bat Hound story. Keep up the great work, and I'll help myself to some potato salad and onion casserole. To which Captain Entropy couldn't help adding, this podcast always makes me hungry. <laughs> me too. Me too. Network all-star Chris Franklin, who just hosted a great episode of FW Presents, co-starring our future guest, Jim Beard, where they talked about the books he edited on Batman 66, drops by to say, great show as always, gents. The action sequences with Batgirl, show that Swan could craft some dynamic action sequences when the story called for it. I think Coletta's inks look pretty good here too, so I'm glad Kurt got good Vince that month. I agree that Kurt drew a pretty sexy Batgirl. I'm not going to disagree with you there, Chris. I didn't get to see Kurt draw Robin much during his teen wonder college years, but whenever I do, it makes me think of his How to Draw Superheroes book Golden put out in the early to mid-80s. Kurt Swan shows you how to draw Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and Robin. Chris then added a picture from that book showing pencil line drawings of Robin by Kurt Swan. You all should check them out. Thanks, Chris. Then Chris goes on to say, one thing I've been meaning to ask, what's up with Batgirl's Robin collar? It appeared in the 70s at some point before this title began. I think in her detective backups during the Don Heck Illustrated run and lasted a few years. I think we'll see it abandoned by the time this series is over. I never cared for it much. Makes Babs look like some odd Batman-Robin hybrid. And as we saw with Earth 2 Robin's original adult costume, that's not always a good thing. (laughs) I kid, I kid. So the amazing thing is, obviously I've read these issues and I love Batgirl and Robin, but I never really, really noticed the quote unquote Robin collar until it was pointed out. Now it's kind of like all I see. (laughs) It's like a movie where you see the shock twist ending and then they show the scenes that happened in the movie and it was always there. (laughs) I've never really paid that much attention to the collar, but now I do see it. And now, yeah, I don't like it. So thanks for ruining Batgirl for me, Chris. <laughs> no, I, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Chris goes on to say, I love Ace. What's not to love? How cool would it have been to see Ace on Batman 66? I'm sure one of the Rin Tin Tin actors had some pups that were in the biz by that point. I agree with what Chris said. Dogs are the greatest creation on this earth. Then Chris goes on to say, thanks for bringing up Signal Man's shining haha, moment in that awesome JLA, JSA, SSOSV crossover. My favorite of the JLA, JSA stories. This is me, Sean, talking. Chris, it's my favorite one, too. I have all of them. I love all of them. But yeah, that three-parter, that's my favorite one. Oh, and Sean, I got you down for that possible Batman Brave and the Bold podcast. But don't forget, Dead Man appears in season three of JLU. Well, hearing that, I'm going to have to stay on complete and utter vocal rest until that time to preserve my instrument. Sorry, Cousin Paul. Sean, I thought we agreed we were never going to discuss your instrument on the podcast. (laughs) Anyway, let's move on. Captain Entropy drops by. Chris, I appreciate all those facts, opinions, and speculation. You're as great a commenter as you are a podcaster. We agree, Cap, for sure. We love hearing Chris's podcast and reading his comments, Mm -hmm. but we prefer Cindy's potato salad. (laughs) Moving back to the Bat Collar, Martin Gray pipes in great question regarding Batgirl's collar. We need the Isamu signal. To which Izumu comes back to school us. Izumu's signal answered. I checked my dad's comics. Batgirl started wearing the collared costume in Detective Comics 414, drawn by Don Heck. 
This was after he had drawn a number of Batgirl backup stories. One involved a case with a fashion designer, and I thought the new collar may have had something to do with that. But that story was back in 410 and 411. There doesn't seem to be any in-story explanation for the change. I think Mr. Heck just wanted to tweak the design a little. I also think it's based on the cape collar worn by the original Batwoman from the 1950s, which I suppose may have been inspired by Robin's cape collar. But this is just my thinking. I checked the Don Heck Tomorrow's book to see if Mr. Heck commented on this in his interview, but he didn't. And Martin replies back, oh Lord, thank you so much for the great research. The Batwoman connection makes sense. That's a great point. We hadn't considered that. So thanks for cluing us in on that. So next up, Word Hill Terry comes by to the reunion and on his way back from the table says he loves this podcast. Well, thank you, Ward. I didn't buy this issue off the stand, but somehow it found its way into my collection early on. I agree with Chris on the art. This was good Coletta. My only beef was with Swan's Robin and Dick's hair. Kurt was still drawing Robin slash Dick with his schoolboy haircut. In the mid-1970s, most of us guys insisted on having our ears covered by our hair. I agree. I do think he looks rather young. And maybe even was Swan like a little bit of an older man by then and kind of didn't want to draw Robin as a youngster with the hip haircut. Ward goes on to say, I, I had read the Ace story in Batman from the 30s to the 70s, and it was nice to see it in color. Ace rules. You know, Ward, I think that's exactly where I must have read it the first time. I had that book and devoured it when I was a kid. And me too. I didn't own it then, but I read it shortly after it came out. So I don't know if a friend had it or maybe the library, but I remember reading that book and reading Ace in here for the first time. And then he wants to know, Sean, what is the color scheme for your Robin costume? So my Robin costume is kind of close to a little bit more modern. It basically was all red, like the, you know, the tunic that covers his chest was red. The leggings were red. The trunks were green. The cape, though, was still bright yellow. And the big R logo, the R itself was yellow with a black circle background. Nice. Ward says he still has a paper list of comics that he needs. He has another titled Legion Stories that I have with numbers from Action Adventures and Superboy and the Legion titles. I think I've got a note on my phone with the same info. I haven't actively sought out back issues for many years now, though. Heck, I still have my 3x5 index card that I cataloged all my comics on. It's almost Bob Rosakis time. Thank you, Ward. You know, us old guys, we got to stick together. And Ward, if you're a completist, you know, there were a ton of Legion stories in the DC Digests. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have comments from our cool relation from another nation, Martin Gray. Glory, Glory to, to Gray. Gray. Thanks for another great show. It's always a highlight when it shows up. As we said, Martin, we'll drop the first Wednesday of each month. Same bat time, same bat network. This isn't an issue I own, but thanks to UK fans finally being allowed to buy the DC Universe Infinite app, I can take a look. It's just a shame we don't get the letter calls and the paper smell. We agree, Martin. That's another reason we came up with a bat branding segment. And hey, listeners, that's another segment that could use a better name. So if you have any ideas, write in. We'll consider them. Martin goes on to say, ah, well, another good cover, almost as splendiferous as last issues. It's a shame the page count went down here. There was probably a great Aunt Harriet adventure <laughs> to be found that sadly was never reprinted. Martin, you're making me happy for a lesser page count. <laughs> then Martin goes on to say, still, at least the price eventually goes up from 50 to 60 cents. And we get the same page count. Money must have been tight at DC, which explains the CAC logos. I noticed no mention was made of the abomination on the Bat Hound reprint. It is indefensible. They couldn't even get it right. There's a hyphen, as in Bat-Girl. 
I agree, Martin. I actually went back to look in my Batman from the 30s to the 70s book, and it's like a huge Batman and Robin logo where that bad bat hound is. So yeah, you are completely correct about that. Then he also goes on to say, I think you chaps referred to the new story a couple of times as quote unquote down to earth, which for me is a euphemism for disappointing. It's always good to spend time with Babs and Dick, but please give me a colorful villain or holographic dinosaur. Still, this was a typically well-plotted tale by Bates and Madden. I appreciate the work you put into the supporting cast. Are you sure our vagabond poet, I agree, he must be based on someone, was getting together with the princess? That's for the old Doiby Dickles fans. At the end, they had a moment, then it all went up with his I am a peasant shtick. But maybe that's playful teasing. Anyway, his speech patterns were indeed odd. A bit Boris and Natasha. All I can say is his poems must have had a blooming good translator. And he wasn't exactly selling his vagabond brand in that swanky suit. Yeah, I wasn't sure either that they would really click, Martin. But the last panel does have them holding hands. So that's why we made that comment. I do note from that issue of Super Friends where the princess comes back that we did not see the vagabond in that issue. So it must have been a short-lived romance. Martin goes on. The writers did well to use Clark, but resist Superman. Clark had had two team-ups with Batgirl in his Superman book by this point, and readers detected chemistry between the heroes. So it would have been nice to have our mild manner reporter throw a spanner in the works of the proto-romance of the dynamite duo. Surely Clark asked for the Washington assignment, so he wants to ride that bat bike? My favorite thing about this story was the art by Kurt Swan and Vince Coletta. The latter was really putting the work in. Just look at the hair detail, while Swan is masterful as always. It's a shame he didn't get as much praise as artists were flashier, but less great with anatomy and pure storytelling. Tragically, his talent was sometimes wasted on advertisements for cakes. Hey, that better not be shade thrown towards my Twinkies ad. The Bad Hound story is classic, with the only bad aspect being the massive creepy clown looking us in the eye on page three. I reckon that's penciler Sheldon Mordorf playing with expectations of cholerophobia. Splendid work from inker Stan K, too. Thanks for the spotlight. These creator callbacks are a favorite part of the show for me. Signal Man is awesome on every level. Just look at him. And even when he's the blue bowman, he's smoking. Now we know Martin must be smoking something. Sean's Robin costume suggestion is fab. Be proud. That needs no stinking redraw. God bless you, Martin. <laughs> so guests on the show can do the whole episode. Well, see if anyone wants to share the one I stuck my hand up for number 11. And if not, take me. If nothing else, it'll save you this amount of feedback. I have no idea why this show turns me into Diablo Frank. No worries, Martin. You are penciled in for number 11, and we'll reach out to you when it gets closer, like we said before, and see how much of the show you and any of our guests want to be on. As we said last month, it can be the whole episode or just one story or anything in between. We're just happy to have Bat Cousins come to the reunion. Otherwise, I have to put up with Sean just by myself. Martin then goes on to personally attack me and says, what cereal did we like best? <laughs> Charmed Pops or some other vile sounding concoction? I am beginning to fear that you have never actually tasted real food. <laughs> well, Martin, we haven't met yet, but your keen insight into my eating habits is remarkable. My favorite cereal absolutely right now is Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Although I'm on my fitness plan, so I don't actually eat Cinnamon Toast Crunch anymore. I eat these things called oatmeal squares, which are not great 
tasting but good for me but yeah right now my favorite cereal is cinnamon toast crunch but my all-time favorite cereal ever is smurf berry crunch i loved that cereal so much and it's like from like 30 years ago but i know right now if i found a box of that i know i would eat it and i know it'd be horrible but i would still try it it'd still be good because all the preservatives that were in it from 30 years ago (laughs) if anyone knows a flavor replacement for smurf berry crunch please contact me right away Uh oh here comes another food section of a comment (laughs) but martin gets us back off of food by saying it probably sounds like i am entirely humorless but is there any chance of giving us the recaps straight rather than putting in whimsical details such as signal man's hoods went off to work for killer moth or whatever sometimes it's hard to know what's actually in the story i don't always have the strip in question the gags could easily be transferred to the commentary then martin says i love that line about the flying saucers mag going over your head the superman 299 villain is amalak a 60s no mark and then he says you're back next issue to play some cornhole well that's going to be x-rated then martin follows it up by saying Nope, I sound humorless. Just forget I said anything. Kind of hard to forget Martin because we take up half the comment section on him. Now, obviously, <laughs> we love your comments, Martin. Keep them up. Next up, Lizanne Oswald comes by the reunion to weigh in. Impressive podcast. Most impressive. Thanks again, Lizanne. The double backflip bit they do. Those can work. Not to the extent they have it shown, but they could do that kick. Still, it could give the artist to show more Robin butt shots as you get to see why Barbara likes him. And I'm pretty sure the boot wouldn't have locked that last style out. Regarding the wrecking ball, Lizanne says, pretty sure Miley Cyrus wasn't even a gleam in Billy Ray's eye when this came out. Still, who knows? Maybe Billy Ray picked up this issue and Miley found it years later lying around the house. I love that image. (laughs) Hey, Dad, what's this old comic book? Oh, let me read it. Oh, wrecking ball. Anyway, Lizanne goes on. The artwork is pretty good. Kurt Swan was doing decent work at this time. Coletta did a good job, though it explains why there are so few back rounds in the issue. Ouch! Lizanne throwing some shade. On to the Ace story. Dogs are definitely great. I have two of my own. That is a pretty cool introduction to Ace. But I think Kevin Hart is playing a random stray dog that gets power in the upcoming movie. Now, in the show notes, Cousin Paul has written, Sean replies, that is correct. We were wrong about Ace being in the movie. But I don't know that. This is a look inside of me. Anytime there's a movie that I know I'm going to go see any Uh-oh, Star Wars, Disney animated, <laughs> Pixar, Jurassic, Marvel, anything that I already know I'm going to go see. I don't watch the previews. I don't watch commercials. I don't read anything about it. So yeah, I think this kind of was spoiled, but it's not like a plot. Po- you know, it's not like, oh, Streaky comes out with rainbow kryptonite and reverses time. So it's nothing like that. Oh, uh, I am in the bat dog house, listeners. Absolutely not. That is completely fine. Anyway, Lizanne goes back to say the mask was kind of cool. For whatever reason, it worked for the dog, specifically one of those 50 stories. We agree. Lizanne comments on the extra features. The charms artwork is pretty bad. Not sure why they would do it that way, unless it was to convince parents into thinking that one of the ad campaigns people's children drew it. (laughs) And then the file cards at the end was kind of cool. The drawing of the Mad Hatter looks like Dr. Bombay from Bewitched. (laughs) Yay! Good call out. She next compliments you, Sean. Cool drawing you did of your own version of the Robin redesign. I did my own and placed it on our Fire and Water page on Twitter. Not one of my best drawings, but I gave it a shot. Can't wait to hear the next podcast. Thanks, Lizanne. And in fact, we took your picture and added it to this episode's gallery. Great job. Thanks for sharing. We appreciate it. And I can tell you, your picture is 10,000% better than mine. (laughs) Next up, Captain Entropy. One more note on another great podcast. 
Count me in as a big fan of the regional pronunciation segment. I love knowing the right way to say things. Okay, hold up, Captain Entropy. You might want to rewind because I can't imagine that I ever said my way was the right way to say it. It might be a regional, but I'm never saying any word that I say on this podcast is pronounced correctly as many people will let you know. He's a big lobbyist for a Franklin's podcast on Batman Brave and the Bold, and I agree. Next up, we have Network All-Star Siskoid, who's bringing back FW Team Up. Yay! Yay! Great show. Looking forward to that coming back. And whom I just recently guest starred on an episode of Who's Editing? That'll be out next week after this one airs. So he agrees, while I agree the villainous eyesore signal man should really be called Symbol Man, a signal man is actually a real thing and the title of a famous Dickens ghost story, whereas Symbol Man isn't. It started with a pun, but it doesn't really work with his gimmick as implemented. Way to bring the literature to the reunion there, Siskoi. Thank you. He's classing up this joint. Yeah, really. Finally, network co-founder Rob Kelly gets the last word. So many motion panels in this issue. Is this a comic book or frames from a Robin and Batgirl movie we never saw? <laughs> oh, now you're making my heart hurt. Oh, I'd love that. Also, I enjoyed the panel of Batgirl taking out two crooks with her crotch. How did that get by the Comics Code Authority? And then Rob says, I like Sean's new Robin costume. So that means that my costume has been a Joe Kubert graduate endorsed item. Wait, did Rob go to the Kubert school? I never knew that. I might be making that up. I don't know if he's ever said that out loud. The reunion has now arrived at Facebook and Twitter likes and mentions. We'll start with Facebook. Brian Linton. J. Kevin Carrier, Herschel Mimas, Max Romero, Terry O'Malley, Mike Thomas, BK On The Air, and Clinton Robison. Now we're going to head on over to Twitter. Doc Strange, Outcasters, B-A-T-O Podcast, Earth 2 Chris, Lizanne Oswald, Captain Freakout's Psychedelic Radio, For All Mankind SF, Siskoid, Michael Thomas, Firestorm Fan, Irredeemable Shag, Tim Price, The Podcrasher, Coffee and Comics, Chris, Tall Tower, Mike Deans, Justin Steiner, Keith G. Baker, and P. Brennan. Thanks a lot for all of your support. That'll do it for this feedback section and for episode six. We hope that you had as good a time as we did at this month's reunion. Join us next month for issue seven, which holds a significant place in my comic book life. And you'll hear all about it next month. Take care, everybody. See you then.